morning, everyone. Father, we're so thankful for double imputation that our unrighteousness has been imputed to your son as he hung on that cross and received uh, all of our sin and then freely imputed his righteousness to our account. We're thankful that when you look at us, you don't see us in, in our own righteousness, which is really unrighteousness, but you see us in the perfect righteousness of Christ. You look at us through that lens of what your son has done, and I pray that we would come before you at this time to worship you uh, as we hear your word going forth with that at the forefront of our hearts and minds, that reality that Jesus has done this for us, and I think of the um, not gratitude is almost an understatement for what should well up in our hearts, but really hearts of worship is what we should have as we consider what, what uh, the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so give us those hearts, Lord, that are uh, receptive and, and anticipate what you want to say to us and want to receive the seed of your word. We think about those soils that, and how some were unreceptive. Give us hearts that receive the seed and produce fruit, you know, a hundredfold as a result. Use me as your vessel, Lord. I thank you for the way you've recorded so honestly Solomon's life and the things we can learn from him so that we wouldn't make those same mistakes. I want to do justice to the scriptures. So if there's anything that I failed to, to see in my studying this week, then I pray you'd bring that to mind so your people wouldn't be shortchanged. And if there's anything in my notes that shouldn't be shared, then I just ask my eyes would gloss over it, Lord. And we want you to be pleased during this time with what takes place and receive the glory and honor you deserve. And so we ask that by your grace that can happen. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. If you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 11, that's where we find ourselves. The title of the sermon is The Need to Apply Wisdom, Part 3. We've been in a series called Pursuing Wisdom. This will be our last sermon uh, talking about Solomon and his failure to apply wisdom. We've been looking at him for the last couple of weeks, and it occurred to me we have looked at him from two completely different perspectives. First, we looked at him as an example of obtaining wisdom or acquiring wisdom, right? He, he sought wisdom. God gave it to him extraordinarily, more than anyone else has, uh, more wisdom than anyone in all of history has ever received before. And then we started looking at him as an example of failing to apply wisdom, which is really to say we started looking at him as an example of foolishness. And so interestingly, you could say that we over these weeks have looked at Solomon as an example of wisdom and foolishness, right? He, he serves as a pretty extraordinary example of both, an example of wisdom and an example of foolishness. We know from Deuteronomy 17 that God told kings not to do certain things. Be, they were not to multiply horses or wives or wealth because they could then put their faith or trust in these earthly resources versus trusting in God himself. And we know kings were not to return to Egypt or send the people back to Egypt. And we also know that Solomon violated all of these commands. He multiplied horses, wives, and wells, wealth uh, to absurd levels. He returned to Egypt through his alliance, the alliance he established with Pharaoh through the marriage to his daughter, and sent the people back to Egypt to gather all the horses. And so very, whether the word is ironically or tragically, Solomon received all this wisdom and completely failed to apply it. And what has been to me in reflecting on Solomon's life over these weeks, one, one of the um, great ironies in, uh, in Scripture, in my mind, is that the wisest man to ever live was also the most foolish. He uh, various, I mean, it's astonishing that he was much worse 
in every single respect after receiving wisdom. He did everything that a king was told not to do. And of all of the sins that Solomon engaged in or all of the compromises that he committed, what was the worst? We talked about this. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was bad to multiply wealth and wives and horses and go to Egypt, but what was the worst thing he did? It was the idolatry that he engaged in. Uh, And so the man, I mean, just try to wrap your minds around this, that built the temple for the Lord is the same man who then went and built all of these idols to all of the worst uh, idols in the Old, or built all these altars to all of these idols in the Old Testament. And so after receiving wisdom, he was worse in every single respect. And so the question that we've been wrestling with the last couple of weeks is how could the wisest man in history be so foolish? And this brings us to lesson one. Solomon's foolishness was produced by lesson one, years of compromise. Solomon's foolishness was produced by years of compromise. I was going to read our verses in 1 Kings 11 at the beginning of the sermon to review them, but I thought it'd be better to just wait until after this, after this lesson because I want to read through them and I want to invite you to do something. As we go through the verses, look for the progression of Solomon's compromise. So one more time, as we read through these verses, 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 8, I want you to notice the progression that reveals Solomon's compromise. So look with me at verse 1. First, Solomon marries all these pagan women. It says, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, so this is strictly forbidden in God's law, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. That Solomon clung to these women in love, and next he permitted them to worship idols, and then they turned his heart away is the next step in the progression of his compromise. Verse 3 says he had 700 wives. So if there was a king that had a marriageable daughter, then it seems that Solomon snatched her up so that he can make an alliance with that nation. And those 700 princesses weren't enough. He also had three and a concubines. They turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And then the next step is he permits these wives to worship idols um, to pursue, and he actually is going to begin pursuing them himself. So look at verse 5. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. He went after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. As Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, he did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And then after he's pursuing them, he starts building all of these altars for them. Look in verse 7. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And so did you notice the progression of compromise there for him? He marries the pagan women. He permits them to worship idols. They turn away his heart. He begins pursuing these idols himself, and then he's building worship centers for them. Now, all of this takes place over eight verses, and so it's tempting to look and assume this happened very quickly. It's almost like one day Solomon is building the house of the Lord, and then the next day he's building altars to Moloch to sacrifice children. But that's not what took place. In Scripture, many years or decades, or even in Exodus 1, I think it's between two different verses, maybe verse 7 and 8, Joseph dies and another Pharaoh rises up that doesn't know the God of Israel. You have 430 years that pass there. Just, I mean, the scripture jumps forward from one verse to the next over four centuries. 
And so my point is, when you look at these verses, uh, don't believe for a moment that this happened quickly or overnight with Solomon. These verses cover decades of progression, decades of compromise in his life that brought him to this point. He was ruined by what slowly occurred over many years. He didn't wake up one day and then have 12,000 horses or 700 wives. He didn't wake up one day and then suddenly silver is worthless in his kingdom because of all of the gold that he has acquired. Instead, what he did was he added a few horses here. He added a wife here. He started acquiring a little wealth here. And then he did that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, until he reached the point that we see here. So we could say this. Solomon acted very foolishly, but he didn't become a fool what? He didn't become a fool quickly, or he didn't become a fool overnight. He did act very foolishly. He did become a fool, but it didn't happen overnight. And this reveals, the reason I stress this is it reveals one of the dangers with compromise. Compromise is something that happens gradually. People are not, people that reach the point Solomon did, it's not as though they're walking and then suddenly they fall off a cliff. Instead of jumping off the cliff, it's just one step in the wrong direction, a small step, and then it's another step in the wrong direction, and then it's another small step, and then it's another small step. And so let's consider what do these small steps look like? It's not controlling our thoughts. Perhaps a thought comes to mind. We know that we should take it captive. We shouldn't dwell on it. It it should be removed. Perhaps there's uh, resentment or bitterness we feel towards someone, and we know that it's ungodly. We're convicted about it. We shouldn't be dwelling on it. We should um, pray to the Lord to think on these things that are, that are good, but instead we allow ourselves to dwell on these ugly thoughts towards someone, or perhaps we don't rip our eyes away. I don't necessarily mean ripping our eyes away from someone attractive of the opposite sex. Perhaps it's just ripping our eyes away from a movie that we shouldn't see. Perhaps it's not ripping our ears away from music that we shouldn't listen to. Perhaps it's conversations that shouldn't continue. You didn't go into the conversation expecting it to go south, but pretty quickly you notice it's becoming compromising. There's some gossips being introduced. Maybe the gossip is even kind of being disguised as though it's a conversation about someone and how we need to pray for this person and help this person, but, but really you're uncomfortable with it. There's things being shared that shouldn't be shared. You know you should bring the conversation to an end, but instead you kind of feed it. You kind of introduce some other things so the conversation can keep going. Maybe it's a little bit of exaggeration. Generally, people who become habitual liars began through exaggeration. You wanted the story to sound a little bit better. You you know, your heart was really for the people to appreciate the conversation and and to find this entertaining. And there's even this really good point you want to make in the story. And so it's, uh, you know, embellished just just a little bit. It's, It's nothing really serious. But we make these compromises in our communication, or maybe it's shifting blame. So we've done something, and we, God's given us some amount of time to repent, take ownership of it. Uh, but God loves us enough that when we don't, he stirs up someone who then either courageously or loving, out of love for us comes to talk to us about what we've done and how it wasn't right. And so this is God's way of graciously 
bringing this before us so we can own it and repent of it, but instead we make excuses, we shift blame, we kind of deny, we try to turn the tables and, and put it maybe even on the person. Well, what about you? I mean, you're talking about this, and what about these things that you do? And then these are those compromises. It's the blame shifting, the excuses, the conversations that go on too long, the setting our eyes on things that, that we shouldn't. And so the reason this is important is because sometimes it can look like sin takes place without any compromise leading up to it. It can look as though a sin took place without any compromise leading up to it, but that's simply not the case. Prior to that sin taking place, there have been some number of steps, probably small ones, or some number of compromises that have been made to get to that point. I'll just give you a couple examples. Let's say someone's driving down the road, or let's say you're driving down the road, and someone cuts you off, and you recognize that you respond in the flesh. And you t- but you tell yourself this, well, I didn't, it wasn't planned. I mean, it wasn't premeditated. I didn't plan to get so upset or scream at that person or lay on my horn and, you know, yell those profanities that the person might have even been able to hear from their car. But I didn't, it, it wasn't really in my heart. I mean, that, that wasn't really what I wanted to do. Well, here's the thing. It might look like it just happened, but there have been some number of times prior to that that we previously did not control our temper to respond that way. Someone who's been self-controlled doesn't respond that way driving down the road when someone cuts them off. We get confronted about something, and we're embarrassed about it. And so we lie. You know, we deny it. And it looks like it just happened. And we want to tell ourselves, well, I'm, I'm not a habitual liar. I don't I don't lie often. It just happened that I was embarrassed and it caught me off guard. And so, and so I said something that wasn't true. But the fact is to be deceitful in that moment means that there have been some number of instances of deceit leading up to that. I mean, to lie that blatantly or outrightly to someone's face like that, where you can look someone in the eye and tell them something that's completely not true or, or, or mislead them so much doesn't just happen. That's the result of many small compromises that have, that have taken place before that encounter. We sit down at the computer, we give in to the temptation to look at something we shouldn't. And so we tell ourselves something like, well, it, you know, it just happened. I'm not used to this. This isn't, this isn't uh, my regular behavior to do this. Well, the reality is for that to happen at that moment in front of the computer means that there have been some number of instances that we did not rip our eyes away when we should have. We've gotten used to setting our eyes on things that we shouldn't. I mean, to, to engage in something that evil, which is what it is to look at pornography, means that there have been some number of other times that someone attractive walked by and, and we, we allowed our eyes to just settle on, on things that it shouldn't. We start coveting something. We're coveting a house, or we're coveting a new car, or we're coveting a new relationship. Maybe we're coveting friends, or we're coveting, and by that I just mean we're coveting popularity. It can look like it just happened, but there have been some number of times before that that we've chosen discontentment. And I'm using that language deliberately. We have chosen to be discontent, or we have chosen not to be content. The world wants to convince us that certain things are beyond our control, like love. Love is this emotion. You know, it comes and goes. God commands us to love because we can love and we can choose not to love. Well, similarly, contentment is a choice. 
We choose to be content or we choose to be discontent. But it, it, the world wants us to think it's something we have no control over, and that's just not true. And so my point is, for the person that is, is sitting there feeling, feeling very discontent over something in their lives, whether it's their home, their car, or their spouse, their children, that's because previously there have been some number of times that they have refused to be content before that that have brought them to that point. And so when we sin, we have already engaged in many small compromises before that sin is birthed. I mean, even in the language in James 1, I'm trying to limit, you know, the number of words I put in the sermon or else I probably wouldn't have went there. I think it's around verses 13 and 14. The major point of James 1, 13 and 14 is that there is a progression to sin before it is born. I mean, that's why there's so much language of conception in those verses. You, you, you look at those verses and you're like, is this talking about sin or a child being born? Because it's describing the growth of sin in a person's life before it's actually birthed. So there's a very strong progression or some number of steps that have to be taken. I want to share a story with you that was shared with us. Some of you might have been there some years ago when we went to the biblical counseling training or ACBC training. I think it was about five or six years ago. There was a gentleman who taught most of the classes, and he's in leadership in ACBC. He seems to be one of the, one of the more prominent men to travel and speak. And he shared about a time that he attended one of the leadership meetings or one of the meetings for the different leaders within ACBC. And toward the beginning of the meeting, I suppose the man who was overseeing the meeting said, I need to share something with all of you. This gentleman, and then he shared, shared the name of some very prominent person, had committed some moral, had, uh, had some moral failure in his life. And so the gentleman who's teaching us during this counsel, during this, uh, the counseling training, he said, everyone just hangs their head. Uh, you know, everyone's looking down. Nobody says anything. It's completely silent for, for what seemed like a very long period of time, probably only a few minutes, but, but seemed much longer than that. And then finally the silence was broken by one of the men at the table who said, when he fell, he didn't fall far when he fell, he didn't fall far. And that stuck with me. I thought that was a phenomenal way to describe what actually happens, but doesn't look like is what's happening. And the reason I say that is, here's, here's what transpires. God is gracious, and so he allows sin to remain below the surface so that we have time to repent. God graciously does not expose our sin to the world so that we can repent of it before we have to be humiliated. But because of that, what happens is then when someone's sin is exposed, it looks like it just happened. It looks like there were no steps or compromise leading to that point. It looks like this major religious figure or leader was walking along and everything was great in his life or her life, and then suddenly... They just sort of stepped off the cliff or fell into this major sin. And you're thinking, wow, you know, they were doing so well. How could they have so quickly just fallen so far? That's not what happened. <laughs> they, were not, they were not doing so well. Th- things were not going wonderfully or uprightly for them. Nobody is walking along, and then suddenly, spiritually speaking, they fall off a cliff. They've been taking little steps down for weeks or months, or years. 
It's been countless compromises for them to reach that point. No man who loves his wife and is faithful to her just immediately turns and commits adultery. There have been multiple instances of compromise for that to happen. And so when you get the news or you hear about some big scandal or something like that, that person didn't fall far. That was just the last step for them. And I want to ask you to think of, and it's just important to keep that in mind because so often I think what we see looks like they're going, going fine and then immediately just this major collapse. And you don't get to see all of the cracks that had been taking place before that. One of the things I want to ask you to consider is how much, or let me say it like this, do you think Solomon or the man in the story that I just shared or any of the people who experience big scandals or moral failures ever imagined things would reach the point that they did? No. Oh. If they had any idea that they were going to find themselves where they end up finding themselves, then what? They never would have done that. They would have stopped the compromises earlier. And this reveals one of the other dangers with compromise. So here's the two dangers, if I haven't been clear about it. One of the dangers with compromise is that it's gradual or it's slow because it's, it's what? It's just one more small step after some number of other small steps. It's never some giant leap It's just been a small step, followed by another small step, followed by another small step. So the gradual nature of compromise is one thing that makes it so dangerous. And then the other thing that makes compromise so dangerous is the perceived harmlessness. The perceived harmlessness. It just doesn't look that dangerous. It doesn't look that detrimental. It doesn't look like anything really bad is going to happen. I mean, if, if people thought something really bad was going to happen, if, someone, if people thought they were going to lose their marriage or lose their family or lose their children, and, and we, don't, we don't generally, we, our minds kind of go to something like maybe sexual sin. But let, let's just say someone with an anger problem who's just been screaming at his family or his or spouse or children for some amount of time. Maybe it carries them into the workplace too. And then they lose their job or they lose their marriage or they lose their children. And I'm not defending abandoning your spouse because your spouse has an anger problem. But I am trying to make a point. That gentleman who has this pattern of of emotionally abusing his family, by the time he has lost them, did not imagine that that was going to happen. People never imagine the consequences to be as bad as they end up being. They never expect to find themselves so far from where they used to be. You almost can imagine that the person who has taken so many small steps in the wrong direction could get out there and look back and think, I don't even recognize myself anymore. I cannot believe how far I have fallen or how far I have come from where I used to be I mean, when did this happen? How did this happen to me? I, ne- I did not used to be like this. I never would have done some of these things years ago, but because it was just one small step after another that seemed harmless, I've, I am now finding myself in this situation that I never imagined doing some, some things that I never would have done even just a few years ago. There's a saying, and I agree with it, that sin will take you farther than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. The only issue I sometimes take with this is it gives the impression, there's almost a little bit of a denial of compromise. 
really, I think this might be equally true to say, or perhaps even truer, compromising will take you farther than you want to go. Compromising will keep you longer than you want to stay. And compromising will cost you more than you want to pay. Because before someone has reached that point with sin, where sin has taken them farther than they want to go and all those other things, there's just been so much compromise that has allowed them to reach that point. Now, I'm sure Solomon, he never imagined... We're not going to have, we're not going to read any further, but I think most of you know he ends up losing most of the kingdom, if not for the covenant that God had made with Solomon's father, David. It seems he would have lost all of the kingdom. So I'm, I'm certain that he never expected everything that he ended up experiencing. Solomon thought there'll just be a few compromises. It, it's a few horses, it's a few pieces of gold. It's just one or two more wives. He didn't think it was going to be hundreds more, literally hundreds more wives, literally hundreds or thousands of more pieces of gold, literally thousands more horses. He never thought it was going to end up costing him as much as it did. And later, I'm sure he would have given just about anything to be able to go back and undo what he did. And when I say that, what I mean is to go back and not take that first step. Because you say, well, how far back does he have to go? You've got to go all the way back to the beginning and not take that first step down the staircase that leads to that final step at the bottom. And how many people have felt that same way? Maybe, maybe none of us have experienced something of that um, sort of magnitude, you know, that Solomon experienced, but I think all of us can probably look at a few instances in our lives and say, you know, I'd, I'd do just about anything to go back and not say that or not do that. I wish I hadn't done this or I wish I hadn't done that. And if we're honest, the only way to ensure that we didn't do that would be to go back far enough that we didn't take that compromise in that direction in the first place. And so, you know, as your pastor, I'm inviting you, consider are there compromises in your life that you need to take back, look, turn back from? Are there, have there been some small steps that you've taken that have brought you in a direction that you know that you shouldn't go? Are there some behaviors or actions that you're engaging in that you know are wrong, but you keep telling yourself, well, it's just, it's small, it's, you know, it's just one more step, it's just one more instance, it's just a little bit more, it's not really that big of a deal. It'll end up being a big deal, especially if God has to expose it because we refuse to repent from it. One reason I think it was so easy for Solomon to compromise is this. All the good he did. This is one of the reasons that Solomon is such an anomaly. <laughs> Let me say this. Is Ahab an anomaly? Ahab's not an anomaly. Is Jezebel an anomaly? Jezebel's not an anomaly. These are evil people. They do evil things. Solomon is an anomaly simply because of all of the good he did. That's what makes him so confusing, and this brings us to lesson two. Solomon's foolishness was produced by justifying. He could look at all the good he did. Solomon's foolishness was produced by justifying. He could look at all the good he did. Maybe you've heard this before people kind of debate. Maybe you've you've talked about it as a family, or maybe you've had a good little argument with yourself, whether you're going to see Solomon in heaven someday, right? I mean, you can make a pretty good argument for not seeing him in heaven. 
And then you start to think, well, maybe I will see him in heaven. I tend to think we'll see Solomon in heaven, which is really to say I tend to think he did not com- uh, commit apostasy, which is really to say he didn't turn from the Lord completely. And I'll tell there's two reasons that I think that. So if someone came and said, well, Pastor Scott, do you think you're going to see Solomon in heaven? I would say, yes, I do think so for two reasons. And here are the two reasons. First, it's generally accepted that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. And that seems basically, especially as you read the end of it, to be an acknowledgement of his foolishness, a description of what life looked like when he, and how empty or vain it was when he lived it apart from God. And when he gets to the end of Ecclesiastes, which really brings you to the end of his life, since he wrote at the end of his life, this is what he wrote. We covered this verse a few months ago in one of the sermons. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon is definitely someone who had to learn that the hard way, and so it seems like Solomon reached the end of his life, and as he reflected, as he reflected on all he did, or you could say as he reflected on all of his foolishness, or you could say he reflected on all that he wasted, he realized that there was really nothing better that he could have done with his life than serve God and obey him. So that's one reason, the end of Ecclesiastes, that I don't think he was an apostate. And the second reason I don't think he's an apostate is contained in these verses. Let me draw your attention back to two phrases that are repeated for us. Look in verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and notice this, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as God, as was the heart of David his father. Now look at verse 6. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. So twice we're told that Solomon didn't wholly follow the Lord, which means what, though? He did sort of follow the Lord. He didn't abandon the Lord completely. He didn't turn from him completely. He simply made the Lord one of the other gods that he worshipped. It's more like he kept worshipping the Lord. He just added all these other false gods to his religious life. I'm not defending it. In fact, I'm making a point that this is part of the problem or much of the problem for Solomon. He could tell himself what? I never stopped worshiping the Lord. I've never gotten the Lord out of my life completely. I've still been having a relationship with him. I've enjoyed these few weeks preaching about Solomon. I was familiar with him. I'm sure most of, most of you were too. But I hadn't preached on him before, which means I really hadn't committed as much time to his life as I have the last few weeks. And so what I've done is I've tried to put myself in his place, which is really to say I've tried to say, what was he thinking? And here's what he was probably thinking. Yes, I built altars to these other gods, but it's what my wives wanted. I did it for them. It wasn't my idea. Really, it's because I was married to them that I had to do it. I haven't stopped worshiping the Lord. I still have a relationship with him. I'm still following him. I, offer, I still offer sacrifices to God. And in fact, I probably offer more sacrifices to Yahweh or to God 
than anyone else in my nation or anyone else alive today. I'm, I'm doing more for God maybe than anyone else in all of history has done for God. Solomon could think that. And in some respects, there's a lot of truth in it. He could say, I am the one who built the temple for God. Who else did that? My dad couldn't even do it. And my dad was a man after God's own heart. God told my dad that he couldn't do something, and then he chose me to do it. Now, all these other idols, they just got some altars from me. I I gave them some high places. But you look what I did for the Lord. I built him a magnificent house. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. In other words, Solomon could say, for anyone that's honest, all they have to do is look at me and tell how much I still love the Lord and how much I'm still doing for him. So what's my point? My point is it was very easy for Solomon. I don't know for sure, obviously, whether he said any of those things. But I am convinced that it was very easy for him to justify his disobedience because of the amount of obedience in his life. Or it was very easy for Solomon to justify the unrighteousness in his life because there had been an amount of righteousness. If I said to you, did Solomon do some very good or wonderful things for God, what are you going to say? Yeah, he did. There are ways in which he was a tremendous servant of the Lord. Few people in all of human history can compare to uh, Solomon in terms of things that were done for God. But that's sort of the issue. It's a lot easier to justify disobedience when it's accompanied by an amount of obedience. Let me say that one more time. It's a lot easier to justify an amount of disobedience when it's, an accompany, when it's accompanied by an amount of obedience. I'm doing these things that I shouldn't do, but look at all these other great things that I am doing. On Wednesday night, Andrew taught, prior to our time of prayer, on Saul failing to slaughter all the Amalekites. You know the account? I mean, if you want to talk about another individual whose life was ruined because of compromise, you're, it's, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone, a better example than Saul. So Saul is commanded to wipe out all the Amalekites, and what did he do? He did mostly. He wiped out most of them. Saul, but Saul thought partial obedience was obedience. And so the prophet Samuel comes to Saul, confronts him about his sin, and then in 1 Samuel 15, 15, Saul said, they, so first he blames the people, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, and then this is why, to sacrifice to the Lord your God but the rest we devoted to destruction. What did Saul do? He justified by saying, I did something bad so that we could do something good. We kept the animals, but only so that we could offer them to God. And so he said he compromised for a good reason, being able to slaughter these animals, sacrifice the animals. We spent a lot of time talking about Solomon, but we should consider how we can do this too. We can justify disobedience by saying, I have done enough. I have done most of what God wanted. I've went this far in my obedience. I've been obedient in these areas of my life. Yeah, okay, I, uh, I'll be honest. Yeah, I'm disobedient here. There's this thing I did that I shouldn't do. But look at all these other areas of obedience. I mean, compare me with him. I'm not nearly as bad as him. I'm doing way more good things than he's doing or she's doing. There are these other good things that I'm sure God notices, which probably stops him from being mad about this sin or bad thing that I'm doing. And so one of the reasons that Solomon could believe God was pleased with him was because of, I mean, because you, you've got to sort of wonder, you've got to ask yourself, how could Solomon go this long being convinced that nothing bad was going to happen? 
because of all of the things that he had been doing well. And so the compromise was very easy to justify. And one of the other things that allowed Solomon to compromise or believe, a better way to say it might be, another way to believe, for Solomon to believe that nothing was really wrong or to believe that God was pleased with him is because of how much God blessed him. I mean, if I said to you, did God bless Solomon? You say, yeah, he was tremendously blessed. What, what is it easy to think when, what is very easy to think when God blesses us? He must be happy with me and he must be happy with me because I'm doing things well. I'm doing the right things or else. And can you imagine how difficult it is to be God? You want to bless people. You want to give them gifts. Every good and perfect thing comes from him. But then you give people gifts who are in sin or God is gracious to people or merciful to people who are in sin. And then it allows them to think that they're not really in sin because they wouldn't be getting this good thing from the hand of God. I, I just cannot even imagine for a moment what it must be like to be God and how to deal with people and know what's best for them. And at least in Solomon's case, I suspect getting all these blessings, being so favored by God, would have been uh, very easy then to believe that God was happy with him despite all the compromise or sin in his life. And one of the things that makes Solomon's decline or failure so confusing, which I hope I can resolve here, relates to all that God gave Solomon. And here's what I mean. If Solomon acquired all of his fame, wealth, honor, everything he had in his own effort, that would be one thing. Because we could say, well, that's not what God wanted for him. That's just what Solomon was able to do. But the problem is what? Why did Solomon have all these things? Because God gave it to him. First Kings 3.10, God was pleased that Solomon didn't ask for all these things, that he asked for wisdom to govern the people well. And so First Kings 3.13, God says, I'm going to give you all these other things that you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. So Solomon receives all this from the hand of God. And then many of the blessings that Solomon received seemed to plague him, which can cause you to think, what about God? or his decision to give all this to Solomon, that he was wrong. You can look and say, it looks like God made a mistake. I mean, why would God give all this to Solomon if it's then going to plague him? You know, I I just think God must not have had the foresight to see all the blessing, all the problems that these blessings would cause in Solomon's life, so God must have done something wrong. That's definitely not the case, and it introduces a really important uh, lesson for us to consider. This brings us to lesson three. Foolishness, Solomon's foolishness was produced by lesson three, letting blessings become Nehushtan. And I'll explain that in a moment. I know it sounds confusing. Solomon let blessings become Nehushtan. I didn't come up with that name, by the way. Katie thinks it's a crazy sounding name, but the people of Israel actually came up with it, as we'll see. I'm going to back up to give you the background to this odd sounding lesson. As we know, when the nation of Israel is traveling through the wilderness, their great struggle was complaining. Listen to this account, Numbers 21.5. The people spoke against God, they spoke against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless bread. Now, God is patient. You've got to push him pretty far to cause him to, to, to unleash his anger. Well, this is one of those times they went too far. I mean, you know, this is the Old Testament. This isn't where you get to just go to Walmart or Safeway and buy all the food you want. They, obtaining food was difficult, except for them. They were in the wilderness, and all they had to do was walk outside 
their tents and pick it up off the ground, and they even complained about that. And so apparently God had had enough. And so listen to what happened. Numbers 21.6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses, and they said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he looks at this serpent on this pole shall live so moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone he would look at the bronze serpent and live so bronze was a picture of judgment because it has to be tried in the fire or you work bronze in the fire a serpent i mentioned a serpent i mean the part of this account that's the most um kind of confusing or difficult for us is the involvement of a serpent right because a serpent reminds us of the devil or sin or evil but that's what makes us such a beautiful picture of the gospel because when the bronze serpent is lifted up you've got if bronze representing judgment and the serpent representing sin you've got sin being lifted up and judged the people were able to look at this and to be saved or they were saved by grace through their faith or looking up as, as this was lift it up and you can say well that sounds a lot like the gospel it does sound a lot like the gospel it's a picture of the gospel i mean that's not my opinion that's why jesus himself compared himself with the bronze serpent john 3 14 as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him or looks at christ in faith on that cross as people were looking at that bronze serpent being lifted up would have eternal life and so in one of the most beautiful instances of romans 8 28 or god working all things together for good he takes the rebellion or sin of the nation of israel and from that produces this tremendous picture of the gospel or of his son jesus christ but then something happened the people kept the bronze serpent maybe like somewhat of an heirloom like aaron's staff that budded or the pot of manna and so they're holding on to it and now we won't turn back to first kings 11 turn to second kings 18 so i can show you something one book to the right to second kings 18. second kings 18 notice what happened with the bronze serpent we'll have to read a few verses into it start at verse one it says in the third year of Hoshea the son of Elah the king of Israel Hezekiah the son of Ahaz king of Judah began to reign Hezekiah was 25 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem his mother's name was Abby the daughter of Zechariah and Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done verse 4 he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asher remember last week we talked about the high places I said very few kings remove them hezekiah was one of the greatest reformers in the old testament along with josiah who did actually remove the high places that's what it says here and look what else he had to remove as verse 4 goes on he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that moses had made those centuries earlier in the wilderness for until those days the people of israel had made offerings to it it was called nehushtan so hezekiah's in all of his great reformation or removal of idolatry from the land he even had to remove the bronze serpent and break it into pieces because the people started worshiping it it became an idol they even gave it its own name and so the object that 
previously brought, I mean, it's just a totally, absolutely tragic situation. I mean, it's one of the um, clearest revelations of the sinful, sinfulness of man's heart or our ability to ruin even good things that what was previously this instrument for healing then ends up becoming this instrument for idolatry. Now, here's what I initially wrote about this. So, it's very good. I think anyone who preaches or anyone who has the opportunity to share God's Word, you know, any of you men in particular who have the opportunity, whether it's in a home fellowship setting or whether it's in Sunday school, I would really encourage you to take time reflecting on your notes. To put, don't prepare the last minute because God can reveal things that you should change. And here's just one example from, from me in this, this past week. Here's what I initially had in my notes. The sinful nature we have allows us to turn even the good things or blessings that God has given us into sinful things. That's just not true. We don't take good things or blessings and turn them into sinful things. Here's what's actually true. The way we use them is sinful, or what we do with them is sinful. They didn't become sinful. There are plenty of things that God has given us and they are wonderful or good or they are even moral and we because of our relationships with them use them in sinful ways but they didn't suddenly become sinful it's not as though god gave us something bad every good and perfect gift is from him he's not a father who gives his children evil things and so all of everything that god gave solomon was good or was a blessing where was the failure it wasn't in god in giving it to solomon it was in solomon in allowing it to become sinful so a few examples food food is a blessing but we can be gluttonous work is a blessing we can be workaholics physical intimacy is a blessing but we can be fornicators or we can be adulterers marriage children homes relationships money are blessings but we can turn them into idols we could covet them and so these things are they're no more sinful than the bronze serpent but when we start having sinful relationships to them then they become nehushtan right it's not as though the bronze serpent itself was this good thing in the wilderness and then became this bad thing it was just the relation the people's relationship to it that became bad and so god gives us blessings but we're responsible with what we do with them we must be good stewards it's our responsibility to handle them well or to handle them in a way that pleases him or handle them in a way that honors him it's interesting you know god gave solomon so much i know this about myself if i was in solomon's place i couldn't have handled it i could not have handled all of that fame i don't think i could have handled all of that wealth i, I mean it's a blessing to not have more money than we have sometimes people say well i want god to be fair you don't want god to be fair for one then everyone would go to hell right but the other reason you don't want it, you don't want god to be fair is because you can't handle what other people can handle in the parable of the talents why does one person get five and another one two and another one one is it because god wants to be unfair or unloving no it's because god is being loving because he knows that this person should get five and that's what's best and this person should get two and this person should get one and the real beauty is the person that gets two is not expected to do everything that the person that gets five receives and the person who gets one isn't expected to do what the person with two receives 
And so it's, for me in ministry, thank God I don't have to compare myself to John MacArthur or some other big-name preachers. What if I thought, you know, that to, be a, to please God, I had to, you know, have minist- a ministry that looked like some of these men? And so it's a blessing to not be given more by God. But here's the thing. What we have been given, and all of us have been given an amount, God expects us to be good stewards of it. And what does it mean to be a good steward of it? It means to use what he has given us in a way that glorifies him. It means to use the blessings he's given us in a way that honors him. So we spent a couple weeks talking about Solomon and how did Solomon fail? He failed in that he stopped using what God had given him in ways that honored God. It's not that the, that the fame became bad or the riches became bad or the honor or all, any of the things that God gave Solomon. None of those things became bad. It's just that Solomon started using them in bad ways or stopped using them in ways that glorified God. That's the main reason that he failed. We've been talking about how the wisest man in history could be so foolish. And this is what I would say. We've actually talked a lot about symptoms, Basically, up to this point, everything I've said about Solomon has been a symptom. The real problem, and it's just one problem, it's not, it's, I've had, you know, eight lessons maybe up to this point about Solomon's foolishness, but there's really just one problem for Solomon, and it's that he lost something. Something changed in him from when he was young to when he was older. And here's what I mean. If you remember when we were in 1 Kings 3, Solomon is a great Old Testament example of the kingdom ethic that Jesus preached to his disciples in Matthew 6, when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Remember, God offered all these things to Solomon and Solomon says, basically, I want wisdom so I can serve you well. So Solomon put the Lord first And then God said, I'll give you all these other things, basically prefiguring or foreshadowing what Jesus would preach to his disciples, including us as his disciples. So very early in Solomon's reign, he put God first, but then what happened? God took a back seat. God stopped being first. It's an issue of priorities. So Solomon had it right when he was younger. He got it out of order when he was older. As he got older, he stopped being as motivated by the spiritual or by his relation to the Lord, and he started being motivated more by the physical, the wealth, the horses, the wives, the alliances, and that was the real problem. And so to me, any, in counseling, I don't know how clearly it looks this way. If you were to sit in on any of my counseling, it doesn't matter what the issue is, I'm trying to point people to Christ. I'm trying to bring them to Christ. And I'm convinced that whatever problems we're seeing in counseling are symptoms of something wrong vertically. And if things can be right vertically, then rare is the horizontal problem that is not resolved. The problems we have in our lives are symptoms of something wrong in the vertical relationship with the Lord. When, when couples have problems maritally, it's really a reflection of something wrong in their relationships with Christ, or when there's problems in parenting, or there's problems in the workplace, or whatever the problems are, the real problem relates to our relationship with the Lord, and if that, if that can be remedied, and so you say, and so that's why often in counseling, I'm talking to people about being in prayer, reading the Word, coming back, giving them homework, coming back, talking to them about what they've done with Christ, because as soon as the relationship with Christ is rectified, 
then most of the other stuff just kind of has a way of resolving itself. And that's basically what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Or in other words, all of these other things will have a way of working themselves out. If you deal with people, they're going to come to you and they're going to share all these problems with you, and it's all going to sound very physical and earthly and worldly. And I don't mean sinfully or immorally. I'm just saying they're going to talk to you about earthly problems they see. You need to look past that. You need to jump over all that to deal with the spiritual. Because the only way that all of those physical problems will be resolved is if the spiritual is dealt with. You can, you can try to fix all of the physical problems, but if the spiritual isn't resolved, then the physical problems are going to remain. It's just going to be some sort of, you know, moralism or outward transformation. But if the inward isn't dealt with, then the outward is going to regress back to that same to the same situation that people have been dealing with. So always, so if you say, well, I'm not sure that I'm really the best counselor. If you can point people to Christ, you'll do a pretty good job. If you can listen well, you can bring scripture to bear on it, and you can share the gospel with them and help them see how Christ is really where they're going to find resolution for their problems, then you'll do a good job in counseling. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and this is how we see Solomon's foolishness. Solomon stopped fearing God. He replaced his love for the spiritual with love for the physical. And his heart gradually turned from the Lord. And as his heart gradually turned from the Lord, then interestingly, the physical blessings actually became curses for him. Let me say that one more time. As Solomon turned from the Lord, everything that he had physically that had previously been a blessing to him became a curse because he tried to enjoy those things apart from the Lord. God wants to bless us, but those blessings can only be enjoyed in fellowship with him. The book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's record of trying to enjoy what life offers apart from God or enjoy the physical without the spiritual, and he found it to be vain. He found it to be empty. When God, or when we enjoy the blessings God gives us in relationship with him, and and there's one question, and I'll conclude with this. With every single blessing God gives you, there's one question that you need to ask. And this is the truth, and it is literally this simple. No matter what blessing or gift God gives you, you ask this question, how do I use this to honor him? How do I bring glory and honor to God with this blessing he's given me? And if you ask that question, then you can allow the blessings to remain blessings and not be curses. So whatever it is that God's given you, whether it's marriage, children, a home, finances, you name it, if you ask that one question, how do I bring honor and glory to the Lord through this blessing, it will remain a blessing and not become a curse. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you give us. We want to use them in ways that glorify and honor you. Excuse me. And so we pray that you would help us to ask that question that we would learn from Solomon and not make the same mistakes he did and that the blessings you give us wouldn't become curses. We thank you for um, just recording so transparently the mistakes that this man made. We thank you, it seems, for the repentance that he, he seems to have uh, engaged in at the end of his life, but we hope not to have to reach the end of our lives and look back with deep regret about foolishness uh, that we have committed. And so, Help us that by your grace we would follow you well, that we would apply the wisdom that you give us. And we thank you so much for all that you have done for us, especially the sacrifice that Christ has made, his righteousness, 
being imputed to us and our unrighteousness being imputed to him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.